Well, let's open our Bibles this morning. Matter of fact, let me have my phone there, Wanda. I want to take a picture of you guys. Is that right? This is to prove to my church that I'm not on vacation. <laughs> All right? So everyone get your best face on. All right, here we go. Oh, man. All right, here we go. We'll just do you. All right, one, two, three. All right. <laughs> Four, five, six, seven. All right, there we go. Ephesians chapter 3 in your Bible, please. May I have one of these bottles? That's great. Ephesians chapter 3. What a joy to be at Southland. Uh, I love your schedule of services on Sunday morning. I love, uh, I love Sunday school. I love uh, the regular service. And I love, love, love the break in between. I mean, that is awesome. Cookies, come on. Sunday, that is amazing. I have been revolutionized. Ephesians chapter 3. In your Bible, hold your finger there. We're going to look at another passage and then stay in that later passage. Uh, but I, I do want you to see one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, look at verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse uh, 14. Where the Bible says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I'm about to pray. For a church that I love very dearly, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would, here's the prayer, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints, what is the breadth and length and depth and height? And watch this, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul said, well, I just want you to know the love of Jesus Christ. To know the love of Christ, which, which passeth knowledge. You really can't ever know it in its fullness. Which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, unto him that is able... Uh, to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Lord, I, I'm asking that you would bless the message this morning. Lord, we're all just a little bit physically tired, and so I pray that you would uh, just give us by your spirit an alertness, help us to uh, to see some things perhaps in, in your word that maybe we've never seen or, or, or maybe just would see in a different light. Uh, maybe just a, a reminder of some things that we need to be reminded of. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in every heart. We all have different needs. We're all at a different uh, stage in our spiritual growth. But Lord, you're our God and you love us. You've given us your word to, to change us. And Lord, I pray that you would do that work this morning. And then our prayer would be that if there would be even one person here today, maybe a visitor, maybe even a longtime church member who does not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, I pray that today, this very day, would be the day of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Bless this message. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
where the Apostle Paul loved people. He just loved people. Everywhere he went, it just seemed as if he made long-standing and long-lasting relationships. And so it was with the church at Ephesus. I don't know that there was a church at which the Apostle Paul spent any more time than the church at Ephesus. I mean, think about it. He was at Philippi for just a little while. He was at Thessalonica, we learned that this morning, for just a little while. He was in Corinth for 18 months. That's a long time. He founded that church. He loved those people. He wrote them four letters. Two of them are included in Holy Scripture, First and Second Corinthians. But when Paul came back to this region of the world, on his third missionary journey, he came back primarily to a place called Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul, along with his young protege, Timothy, boy, they just made inroads for the gospel. And for almost three years, that's a good way to remember how long Paul spent at Ephesus, third missionary journey, three years. And for almost three years, the Apostle Paul ministered to this church, loving them, preaching to them, uh, trying to inculcate the gospel into that, that wicked, wicked society. You read a little bit about that in Acts chapter nine, n- number 19. And now the Apostle Paul writes this church. We know that uh, the, this is an epistle, a letter, that the Apostle Paul is writing to this church, the church at Ephesus. Now when we say the church at Ephesus, we probably mean several different congregations, uh, meeting in several different places, but be that as it may, these are people whom Paul reached and people whom Paul loved and people for whom Paul had a burden. And when the Apostle Paul wrote this church, he wrote three chapters that were highly theological. Listen, I want you to know some things. I want you to be aware of some, some timeless truths about God, about the Word of God, about your position in Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have a proper theology, if you don't know who you are in Christ, if you don't know who God is, if you don't understand what the Bible is and what your identity is in Jesus Christ, you'll never really serve God the way that you can and the way that you should. Because our our actions ought to flow out of our heart. Our actions ought to flow out of our theology. And so for three chapters, the Apostle Paul sets up a strong theological structure. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he just gets practical. And so here's what we ought to do about it. And by the way, that's important too. If if you just know things and and believe things but never do anything about them, then I wonder what you truly believe. Because we only truly believe that which moves us to action. And so the end of this theological section is a section in which the Apostle Paul prays. He said, I just want you to to know God. I want you to, to, to know the things of God. I want you to be permeated with, I want you to be motivated by the love that Jesus Christ has for you and the love that you ought to have in a reciprocal way for him. And matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said this to the church at Corinth. He said, the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And so the Apostle Paul said, listen, what motivates me in my life, what motivates me is the fact that Jesus loved me enough to die for me. And if Jesus loved me enough to die for me, that's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. If Jesus loved me enough to die for me, then I love him enough to live for him. And that's his prayer 
for the church at Ephesus, I am praying that you'd know the length and the breadth and the depth and the height. I want you to know the love of God. You might not be able to, to, to fathom all of it, but, but, but to know it deeply. Because in knowing God's love, you're going to know how to serve him. And you're going to be perpetuated in that service. Say, Pastor Scully, we know that. I know that you know that. I know that that's axiomatic uh, for a church like yours. I know that. But you know, this is a church that received a lot, of, a lot of attention for the Apostle Paul. Think about it. He wrote the book of Ephesians. He, he wrote 1 Timothy. That was to the pastor of the Ephesians. He wrote 2 Timothy. That was to the pastor of the Ephesians. He wrote other books like Colossians that were intended to be encyclical letters that probably traveled to Ephesus. I mean, this church got a lot of attention from the Apostle Paul. But you know what's interesting? This church also got some attention from another apostle. Not in the same time period. No, no, no. This church received another letter, didn't it? This church received another letter, uh, not, not a year later, not two years later. This church received another letter 30 years later. I doubt that I'll be alive 30 years from now. My family has all died young. I may be, and by God's grace, I hope I am. Right now, I'm, I'm 51. I'll be 52 next month. If I live to be as old as my dad lived, I'll live four more years. I hope I live longer than that. Only God knows. If I live 30 more years, I'll be 81 or 82. I hope that if I'm 81 or 82, I'll be like Dr. Don Sisk. I hope I'll still be kicking for the Lord, you know, traveling. I hope that Southland Baptist Church will invite me to come preach when I'm 82. And I hope I can make my, I hope I can make my way up the stairs. If not, I'm praying that well, you'll be too old to carry me at that point, Pastor Hernan, but uh, I hope that some, there'll be some men of the church that could carry me. And I probably won't have any teeth left, and I probably won't have any hair left, and I'll probably be stooped over. But I'd love to be able to say something to you 30 years from now. I'd love to be able to say 30 years from now that this is the same church. I'd love to see the, I counted almost 30 I count almost 30, 20-somethings. Almost 30 of you singing. In 30 years, you'll be my age now. But I, I pray that, that the God that you love today, I pray that the songs that you sing today, I pray that the passion you have today is a passion you have 30 years from now. Because I'm going to tell you something. There is a danger to second-generation Christianity. There's a danger. And the danger is that we'll know all the things to do. The danger is that we'll learn all the things to say and we'll learn the culture, the subculture of the independent Baptist world, but we won't know God. That's the danger. And watch what happened to this church. 30 years later, turn to Revelation chapter 2 and we'll remain there for just a few minutes. Revelation chapter 2. And please keep your Bible open. 
Look back one verse to chapter 1 where the Bible says the mystery, this is Jesus speaking, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. Jesus, in my right hand, Jesus is speaking. And the seven golden candlesticks, watch how the Bible interprets the Bible in chapter 1 and verse 20. The seven stars, watch this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The stars are the angels. Angel in the Bible can refer to the class of beings that God created as ministering spirits, angels. But angels in the Bible also are a reference simply to messengers. And so when the Bible talks about the seven stars in Revelation that are the angels, stars are the angels, the Bible is not talking about a, a class of beings that are in heaven that minister to God as ministering spirits, according to Hebrews chapter 1. No, when the Bible talks about the stars and the angels, it's talking about the pastors of these churches. Those human beings through whom God is going to message uh, the, the information uh, for these churches. And so the stars are the angels, are the pastors of these churches. Look at verse 20 again. The seven stars are the, uh, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. And so the star is the pastor. You didn't know your pastor was a star, did you? Your pastor is a star. That means when he's stubborn and acts like a, a, a rock, he's a rock star. That means when he gets clumsy and trips and falls, he's a falling star. That means when he goes out and practices at the rifle range, he's a shooting. Uh, and, okay, so <laughs> look at verse 2. That's the best I got. If you want humor, wait for Miller tonight. Okay, look at verse, look at, uh, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. So the Lord now is speaking specifically to a body of believers. And he's speaking through a pastor. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and uh, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and, and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labors, and hast not fainted. Watch this, verse 4. Nevertheless, you, you, you've heard this verse a thousand times. Nevertheless, I, I have somewhat, I have this. I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You didn't, didn't lose it, you left it. Thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence, from where? Remember where you were. Remember, uh, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else. Has mom and dad ever said to you, or else? Or else, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Wait, wait a minute. What, what did that just say? Or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will remove thy candlestick. Well, the candlestick is the church. In other words, you better, you better think about this and make some adjustments or else I'm going to remove you as a church. 
How many of us know of churches that at once were great soul-winning institutions, uh, great gospel machines, and great places of, of, of love and discipleship that no longer exist? We all do. The candlestick is gone. Word to God that Southland Baptist Church would always exist until the day that Jesus comes. But the Bible says here there is a possibility that a candlestick can be removed. Look at verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I want to talk to you for just a moment this morning on the church that almost died. I want to talk to you today about the church that almost died. Years ago, I was called by a church member. I'd been pastoring for five years at Harvest Baptist Church. It was about 1990, or about 2001. Pastor, you've got to come quickly. My, my dad's been rushed to the, to the hospital. I said, well, I'm on my way. I got my car, drove down to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about a 45-minute drive, and I parked the car in the parking garage and made my way up to the emergency room, and, and there was one of our church members, the father of this, this woman. He was also a church member. His name is John, and I went in, and John was on life support. The tubes were coming out of his body and the ventilation system had been installed and he just looked horrible. There was my church member standing by him, sobbing, holding his hand. There was his wife, sobbing, on the other side, holding his hand. There were two of the sons that had come in from out of town and the whole family had gathered. And there I was. They said, Pastor, the doctor just left and the doctor said he won't survive the night. It was totally unexpected. Nobody could have predicted it. And here was a, a dad that was healthy and a dad that, with whom they had just interacted that week and now a dad that's laying on, on death's door and we're going to lose it. Can you imagine? Think about the person near you today that you love and think about the family member right near you today that, that you're interacting with. Can you imagine this very week sitting next to them in a hospital room? Unresponsive. That's what happened. We prayed together and we lingered together. After just a time, we, we left the, that room and went over to the waiting room. We prayed again. We talked again. We spent time. The doctor came in. It would just be a matter of moments now. You better come back in. We came back in. He couldn't respond. He, he was completely out of it, but his breathing was labored. <gasps> <gasps> I remember sitting there thinking, I wonder how many more of those breaths he'll take. <gasps> we waited for a half hour, then an hour, then two hours, and then three. <gasps> Finally, about six o'clock in the morning, I, I looked at that woman. I said, listen, I don't want to be disrespectful, but you know, I, I'm going to need to, to head home and, and to take care of some things, and I, I want to come back and you know, call me, please, immediately. So I left. I did come back. and Then I came back the next day. and Then I came back the next day. and Then I came back the next day. and Then in about three weeks, he got out of the hospital. and 
Last week he was in church. He almost died. I'm going to tell you something. That day changed that family. That day changed the interaction among those siblings. Hey, we almost lost dad. They never looked at him the same. They savored every moment. It's like, well, we know it matters now. We know it's important now. I mean, we almost lost him. See, the church at Ephesus is that church. They're lying in the uh, intensive care unit in the hospital. They're on the ventilation system. People have gathered. Uh, she's about to gasp her last breath. We thought she was healthy. We thought she was doing so well. And she's going to die. She's almost there. What happened? We don't know. History is not complete enough to know. Did Ephesus ever really repent? Did they ever continue? We don't really know. But notice what happened in Revelation chapter 2 in verse 1. I want to give you three thoughts. Here they are. I want you to see, first of all, a church that was favored by the interest of Christ. A church that was favored by the interest of Christ. Can I just say this? Jesus loves his church. And Jesus loves this local church. He loves it. Jesus loves what's going on here today. He loves the assembly of his people. He loves the local church. If Jesus were alive in, in uh, this town to this morning, he'd be right here in the service. He loves it. That's why he said uh, to husbands, he said, husbands, I can think of no greater, uh, a greater uh, uh, injunction to give you than to say, love your wives like I love the church. He loves it. And so here's a church, and Jesus loves this church. This church is favored by the interest of Christ. How do we know that? Well, what are some clues right here in our text that help us to understand that Jesus loves this church? Notice this. First of all, Jesus loved this church because he's given them a pastor through whom he communicates. Do you see that in verse 1? Look at it. The Bible says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Hey, Jesus has favored this church. Why? He's given this church a pastor through whom he communicates. I brought an entire Sunday school lesson this morning, and some of you were, weren't able to be here yet, and I would just encourage you, if it got recorded, I would encourage you to get that Sunday school lesson. Why? Because it's important for us to understand that God has given us spiritual leaders in our life. He's given us authority figures in our life, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, that's, not, that's a good thing. And uh, God is loving us by putting people in our life that can help us. That's a matter of God's love. Uh, God is loving us by putting pastors and spiritual leaders in our life. I'm so grateful for Pastor Ralph Wingate. Where would I be today were it not for the ministry of Pastor Ralph Wingate, a young man in his early 30s? When I, as a fifth grader, and my mother remarried, and we went to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newington, Connecticut, I'm so thankful for a man that loved the Bible and loved God and was faithful. And I wouldn't be here today were it not for the influence of my pastor, Pastor Ralph Wingate. And then many other pastors down through the years whom God has strategically brought into my life. Hey, listen, that's not uh, some man that changed my life. That's God loving me by giving me the gift of a pastor in my life. Are you grateful for the pastors that God has brought along to your life? Are you grateful for the people uh, through the, the fabric of your life that God has woven into your life to say, uh, uh, at just the right time, at just the right place, God gives us just the right people. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the pastor, the pastor is God's gift to a local church. Did you know that? In other words, uh, I am a gift to Faith Baptist Church. Now, my church says, well, we're glad for the gift, but we really don't like the wrapping. Hey, just shut up. Okay, but uh, 
understand that God does that. It's one of the ways by which God says, I love you. And so this was a church favored by the interest of Christ. Why? There was a pastor through whom he communicated. But not only that, watch this. There was a power. Do you see it in verse 1? There was a power by which he controlled. Look, look at what it says in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars, saith that holdeth the seven in his right hand. Hey, listen, the right hand of God is the hand of power. The right hand of God is the, 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 the hand of, of might. And what the Jesus is saying is, listen, I've got you. Jesus, I've got you. Remember, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible that help us to understand the security of the believer is John chapter 10. Where the Bible says, man, he's placed this in his hand. You can't get out and get the Father's hand. There it is, the hand of God. And God says about the local church, I've got you. I'm holding you. I'm holding. That's the power. Aren't you glad that this church is empowered not by some organizational structure, not by some uh, satisfaction of a mortgage payment, but aren't you glad that Southland Baptist Church is controlled and empowered and protected by Jesus Christ? It's a wonderful thing. And so this is a church favored, favored by the interests of Christ. There's a pastor through whom he's communicating. There's a power by which he's controlling. There's a people, the Bible says. Look at it in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, there's the pastor. These things saith he uh, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. There's the power by which he controls who walketh in the midst of the seven golden castles. There's a people for whom he cares. He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Can I just say something this morning without being really mystical and waiting for the motorcycle to go by? Jesus is here. Now, I'm glad that you're here today. I've enjoyed interacting with many of you already. But I want you to know that Jesus is here today. Because where two or three gather together in his name, there am I. In the midst of them. And the Bible says that Jesus is walking in this church today. I'm not trying to be mystical. I'm just trying to be biblical. That Jesus takes great interest in what's happening this morning. He walks up and down these rows. And he knows what you're struggling with. And he knows what's in your life. And he knows the needs you have. He knows the decisions we need to make as he walks in and among these rows. And she's, He cares. This is not a perfunctory performance of duty this morning. This is not just another church service that we have every week and we're just going to go through the moat. No, this is something that Jesus cares about. Can I just say, the church of Ephesus was a church favored by the interest of Jesus Christ. The church here, Southland Baptist, is a church favored by the interest of Jesus Christ. He cares about what's going on right now in this place. Watch this, number two. Not only was it a church favored by the interest of Christ, but would you notice number two this morning? This was a church featured with some impressive credentials. Man, Jesus had some things to tell us about this church. And Jesus had a biography to write about this church. 
And I wonder if Jesus were to take out the pen of eternal scripture and write a, a biography of Southland Baptist Church, what would he write? I wonder if Jesus were to take out a pen tonight and say, here's what I observe at Southland Baptist Church corporately, what would he say? Well, watch what he said about this church, a church that has an impressive uh, resume. Well, watch it there in verse 2. He said, I know thy works. He knows what you do. And thy labor, I know how you do it. And thy patience, and I know how you continue to do it. Patience means endurance. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Boy, you have a, a high and lofty standard. But for righteousness, for holiness, for doing right, for being right, for preaching right. Watch it in verse 2. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. Uh, you're, you know the scripture so well that you're able to apply it as a rubric uh, on the lives of other people and determine whether or not they're, they're true to the faith, or whether they're a false prophet. I mean, you have some great spiritual insight. Look at verse 3. And as born, you've put up with some things. You've dealt with some things. You've gone through hard times. In the day of adversity, you've not fainted. Uh, you've born, you have patience. There it is, endurance. And for my name's sake, you've labored and hast not fainted. Wow! I'm going to tell you something right now. If the Lord were to say that about me, if the Lord were to say that about you, I think all of us would feel really, really good. This is a church featured with impressive credentials. What are those credentials? I would say, first of all, they were exact in their doctrine. Man, I'll tell you what, they, they dotted every fundamental I. They crossed every fundamental T. I mean, they were people that knew the book. They were people that made much of the word of God. And this wasn't some kind of whipped cream, frilly kind of church that just anything goes and say whatever you want and whatever feels good. No, these were people foundation upon the word of God. These were people that were memorizers of scripture. And these were people that were uh, codified their teaching and, and discipleship. And man, they knew their stuff. I think Southland Baptist is like that. From what I've observed, you feel like, I feel like I'm around biblically literate people. I feel as if I'm around people that, that, that know the Bible and, and know the Word of God and people that emphasize the Bible. And I know your pastor. And I know his heart for the Bible, and his heart for teaching the Word of God. I believe that Southland Baptist Church, to the best that she can be, strives to be a church that's exact in her doctrine. I believe that. That's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that, and there needs to be much more of that. And I would say to you that if there's, a, if there's wiggle room in your life about what you believe and why you believe it, you ought to uh, delve deeply in the Scripture, and you ought to know why you believe what you believe, and you ought to be a better student of God's Word. Hey, these are all good things. They were exact in their doctrine. But watch this. Not only were they exact in their doctrine, I would say, number two, they were exemplary in their deeds. Exemplary. It wasn't just a no-so. They weren't just hearers of the word. They were doers also. They weren't deceiving their own selves. They looked at themselves in the glass and they said, okay, that's what we need to do. Now we're going to do it. They weren't just uh, talking about it. No, their faith had works. Uh, they understood that, that, that connection. We're not just, uh, we're not just professors, but, but we're, we're possessors. And, and we're going to take what we know and, and apply it to our life. That's great. They were an active church. And you talk about busyness. Hey, Southland Baptist Church, 
I'll give you an A+. Plus. Now, from what I've, what I've seen, now maybe if I come back next month, I'll find out you're really kind of lazy. But, I mean, this, this week, I'll tell you what, man, wow. It's been unbelievable. I think this was a church exact in their doctrine. I think this was a church exemplary in their deeds. I mean, if you put them up next to other churches, you'd say, man, that church works hard. Boy, they, they labor. Not only that. They were exact in their doctrine. They were exemplary in their deeds. But can I say quickly, number three, they were extraordinary in their devotion. They were extraordinary. I mean, they didn't just, uh, they didn't just work hard for TNS. Man, next week they're working hard. Next week they're working hard. Next week they're working hard. And when trials come, they stay in there. And per- persecution comes, they don't quit. And they have patience, and they're bearing, and, they, and they, they, they don't faint. I mean, they keep at it. And some of you have been part of this church way back from the time it was Bethany. And for 24 years, you've served God here. For 24 years, uh, you've seen the ups and downs, and people have come and people have gone, but you've stayed with it. Hey, thank God for that. And so here's the church. Man, they've got it doctrinally. Here's the church. They've got it. They're doing. Here's the church. Man, I'm telling you what, they're sticking with it. What more can you say about a church that's wonderful? They're in the top 1%. Nevertheless, it's almost like Jesus said, good, 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 great, but good, good, excellent, wow, man, ooh, but. And that one word, nevertheless, changes the entire equation of the church at Ephesus. I said, number one, they were favored by the interest of Christ. I said, number two, they were featured with some impressive credentials. But watch this lastly, number three. This was a church that was facing an imminent condemnation. Oh, my a church, this church, they're, they're so healthy. This church, I mean, look at them, their countenance. Look at them, their actions. Not realizing that all the while there was a cancer spreading throughout their body. Oh, they look good. They look good. All the while there was an aneurysm in their brain. All the while their heart was weak. Oh, they look so good. They look so good on the outside. But they were just on the brink of breaking down, weren't they? They were just a step away from death. And like that man in the hospital, what in the world happened? This church almost died. Watch the imminent condemnation the Bible describes, and we'll be done. Look at verse 4 of our text. Nevertheless, you see that in verse 4? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why? Did you make a doctrinal misstep? Why? Are you beginning to miss some church services? Why? Did you not work hard enough? Why? I have somewhat against thee because, here's the why, because thou hast left thy first love. Stop. Time out. Go back. 30 years. I'm praying for you, church. 
I'm praying that you'd be filled with all the knowledge of God. I'm praying that you would know the, the length and the, the breadth. I'm praying that you'd know the depth and the height. I'm praying that you'd know the love of Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's all that's going to matter. But what happens sometimes is we take that motivation and we even take Christ. And all the things that perpetuated and initiated our ministry. And we just become robots. We just become people that treat church like we treat work and all the other responsibilities of life. Oh, we show up. Oh, we do. Oh, we punch in. Oh, we're careful. Oh, we don't quit. Oh, we're faithful. But all the heart is gone. Why do you do what you do? Is it because, well, I want to be known as a faithful young man. I want to be known as a consistent Christian. Or do we do what we do because of what Jesus did and is in our lives? Watch what the Bible says. Watch what the Bible says. Faced with an imminent condemnation. What do I do? Number one, you got to remember. Do you see that? In verse 5, you have to remember. Remember where you were? Remember when you used to tell the Lord that you loved him? Remember when it wasn't about the activity and it wasn't about the, the extraneous things, it was about loving God? Remember when you used to sing the hymnal and actually sing the words and mean them? Remember when you used to come to an altar? Remember when you used to get choked up? Remember when you were so excited about an answer to prayer that you had to tell somebody? Remember when you had such a burden for a coworker and you just were trying to find a way to tell them about Jesus? Remember? Remember when you were perpetuated by your love for Jesus Christ? Can you remember that? Because all of the return is based upon remember where you were. Hey, can you remember 30 years ago when it all started? Remember living by faith and just praying that there'd be a place to meet? Remember when Paul came and met with us and how, how, how we had that big riot, and, 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 but we, we per persevered? Remember the young pastor, Timothy? Man, he was just a kid preacher, but remember how he used to preach the word of God? Remember that? What happened to us? Now we've got this big building, and now we've got this established church, and now we've got kids that have grown up here, but where's the heart? Where's the love? Where is it? Sometimes we have to stop and just remember. Watch this, number two. And then in remembering, we need to repent. The Bible says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and repent. In other words, I'm the one that's moved. I'm the one that's left. I'm the one whose heart has grown cold. Oh, yes, I might be doing all the things I've ever done, and, and I might be believing all the things I've ever believed, but, but my heart is gone, and the passion is gone, and the impetus is gone, and I've got to stop and say, God, I'm wrong. That's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to say I'm wrong when I look so right. It's a hard thing to say I'm wrong when I'm showing up. It's a hard thing to say I'm wrong when I look the part, and I say the part, and I know the part. It's a hard thing to say I'm wrong when I look so much better than the guy next to me. It's hard to 
But wait a minute. I'm not asking you to look in the mirror. I'm asking you to look in your heart. Boy, we've got to remember that we have to repent. And then we have to return. Do you see what it says? Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works. In other words, let the love that you have for Jesus Christ manifest itself in the things that really matter. What are the first works? That's having a heart for souls and a love for people. That's having a heart for souls and a love for fellow Christians. A heart for souls and a love for fellow Christians. Everybody that falls in love with Jesus Christ has a heart for souls and a love for other people. Peter, do you love me? Yes, do you? Yes, do you? Because if you did, you wouldn't just be talking about it. If you did, it wouldn't just be a, a doctrinal treatise. If you did, it wouldn't just be about the performance of duty. Peter, if you loved me, you would be investing your life in the people near you. You'd be feeding the sheep. And so my closing question is this. Can I love God the same way that God loves me? Can I? Can I love God the same way that God loved God loved me before I loved him. Can I love God before he loves me? God loved me when I was unlovely. Can I love God when he's unlovely? No, ostensibly it would seem that I cannot love God the way that he loves me. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus was asked one day by a lawyer. He said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. That wasn't the question. The question was, what's the greatest? Jesus said, love God. That, that's the answer. But then he added, and then love your neighbor. That's number two. On these two uh, commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But wait a minute. In Romans chapter 13, in Galatians chapter 5, in James chapter 2, Paul, in the first two, and James, in the last one, told us that fulfilling the law was loving your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute. Jesus said fulfilling the law was love God, love your neighbor. That makes sense to me. But Paul said, owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. In Galatians 5, he said the same thing, that loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. James said, if you fulfill the royal law, the number one law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. And so Paul and James said, if you want to live the Christian life, just love your neighbor. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Love God and love your neighbor, number two. So what is it? Is Jesus contradicting Paul and James? Or more importantly, are James and Paul contradicting Jesus? So another guy comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? And Jesus said, well, what do you think? The guy says, well, what I think is you need to love God and love your neighbor. He gave the exact same answer as Jesus did. So you know what Jesus said? Okay, do that. If you want to do that, you'll live. In other words, if you could effectively love God and love your neighbor, you'd be keeping all of God's commandments. You'd be earning your salvation. There are two ways to be saved. Either trust the finished work of Jesus Christ or you never sin. Okay, but you've already kind of blown the second one. 
So the man said, okay, no, that's, she, she said, go ahead and do that. And the man said, and who is my neighbor? He didn't say who is God because everybody assumes he loves God. And Jesus said, no, I'm clarifying by saying, who is your neighbor? In other words, here it is. You can love God the way he loves you because loving your neighbor is the way that you love God. It's the means by which you love God. And one day, people will say to Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jesus will say to people, rather, he'll say, I want to thank you for visiting me when I was in prison. I want to thank you for providing clothing for me when I was naked. I want to thank you for giving me a cup of water when I so desperately wanted it. Thank you for feeding me when I was hungry. And then they will say unto him, Lord, when saw we thee naked and clothed thee? Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Lord, when were you in prison and we, Lord, I don't remember doing that. And Jesus will say, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. So can I love God the way he loves me? The answer is yes. Because when I love other people, the lost by leaning into Christ, a fellow believer by nurturing and helping and encouraging, when I love somebody else, I'm not just showing love for God. Watch this. I'm showing love to God. What happens is churches become organizations. We've got our methods. We've got our programs. We've got our isms. We have our ologies. But at the end of the day, you know who we are? We're a family. And our job is to win the lost and to love each other. And if we're not winning the lost and loving each other, we're not a church. God says, you know what? I might just take your sign down. I might just remove your candlestick because you're no different than the club down the road. But if you can win people to Christ and love each other and in so doing, love me, then you've got it. I wonder. Where are you? Where is Southland Baptist Church? Father, thank you for the wonderful opportunity that you give me to share the word of God. Lord, I I don't take it for granted. I'm not worthy of it. And you know that the very messages I preach, I fall short of. And yet, Lord, this is the message. A message we all need. God, I pray that Southland Baptist Church, which has all of the external signs of health, would indeed be healthy. I pray that Southland Baptist Church, that has all of the impressive credentials of a church of of Ephesus, would be a church that centers on loving you by loving lost sinners, by serving each other. Oh, God, would you help this church not to become systematic, methodological. Oh, God, would you keep this church organic and real and loving. Oh, God, do a work. Bring health and vitality. Secure it right here at Southland Baptist. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. The services come to a
and then except for what we call the invitation. An invitation is an opportunity for me, not for the person next to me. It's an opportunity for me to make a decision based upon what the Word of God has said to me. So right now in the quietness of this moment, I want you to decide what has God said to you. Have you grown a little bit too regimented, a little bit too mechanical? Can you honestly say that your passion is to love God by winning people to Christ, by nurturing and loving fellow believers? At the end of the day, that's who you are. That's who you're supposed to be. Or are you sick? All the signs of health are on the inside next to the prognosis of the Word of God. Mm. In just a moment, we're going to stand together. Our musician will play. I'll let pastor conduct the invitation. But as the invitation is conducted, I'm just going to ask you maybe to come and find a spot, this old-fashioned altar. And insofar that you're a part of Southland Baptist, oh God, would you instill in me that first love passion. Oh God, help me. Lord, would you bless this invitation? Help each one of us to respond to what your Holy Spirit has said. Oh God, bring health, true health, to our churches and to our lives because of repentance and submission. Oh God, may we return to you today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. The music is playing. If God has spoken to your heart today, Pastor, you come lead us. I want you to come. Let's stand together. The song is playing. Pastor, you come.